Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Taco Cohen. Taco is a machine learning researcher with Qualcomm Technologies. Taco, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background and uh, how you came to work in machine learning? Yeah, sure. I guess it started uh, with uh, my bachelor degree in, in computer science. I started off thinking uh, uh, as a teenager, I might become a game developer or something like that. But during my, uh, my studies, I uh, got more and more interested in you know, AI as well as how the brain works did some courses on psychology, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, AI, machine learning, and so on. And uh, after that, uh, I first went to, to travel for uh, a couple months and uh, really think about what I wanted to do next. And uh, the high-level thought I had at the time was that uh, I would like to understand how the mind works, uh, what intelligence is, and, and how we can, uh, can build it, but primarily how, how it works in, in humans. Uh, so I considered actually studying uh, neuroscience or, or cognitive uh, neuroscience, but I kind of realized reading a bunch of papers that uh, at the time and even still now, I think our ability to probe the brain and to understand it at a algorithmic level is still quite limited. You know, as a neuroscientist, you might be, you know, looking at the nitty gritty details of neurotransmitters and receptors and, and cells and so on. Or you might be looking at, say, uh, an fMRI uh, or EEG type of modality, which gives you sort of very coarse-grained information, maybe tells you what brain areas are active during a certain task, but not really what inf- type of information processing is happening. Uh, and then there's cognitive, computational cognitive science, where people try to build these computational models. And typically, what they'll try to do is to build a model that's somewhat realistic based on what we know on the, of the brain, and then to validate it based on how well it reproduces human psychophysical data, like uh, response times in a, in a visual recognition task or something like that. this. Uh, but I also found that this to be unsatisfactory because uh, it's actually not that hard a constraint to, to match the response times. There are many models that will do that. And uh, not all of them are going to be, you know, realistic uh, models of the, of the brain. Uh, so then I thought, well, what is the what is like the the main constraints that they're missing? Uh, well, that's the actually displaying if intelligent behavior. And so I, I got to adopt more of an engineering mindset. Let's first just try to create systems that display intelligent behavior, whether that's in perception, visual perception, or reasoning or action type tasks. And then uh, maybe maybe have it be loosely inspired by the brain. So obviously, all of deep learning is using neural networks with distributed processing and so on, very loosely inspired by the brain. And first, try to satisfy this constraint. Uh, and of course, as a, as a side benefit, you get to not just understand what's going on potentially in intelligent information processing systems, but you can also do some, some useful things with it uh, in terms of applications and such. So I decided to, uh, to study uh, AI at the University of Amsterdam. I met uh, Max Welling there and ended up doing a PhD with him uh, where I had a great time applying ideas also from pure mathematics and physics to, to machine learning. And I also ended up founding a company together with Max and uh, two other co-founders, which uh, eventually got acquired by, uh, by Qualcomm. And that's how I, uh, I got to where I am now. Awesome. Awesome. 
Yeah, one of the really interesting themes that recurs on the show uh, over the past few years, particularly when I'm talking to folks in the context of NeurIPS, is this kind of bi-directional relationship between the study of the brain and AI and how one feeds the other and the other feeds back. Uh, do you stay in touch with the you know, biological and neuroscience side of the world? I would say, well, the, the really honest answer is that no, in that the, the, you know, the demands of the job, uh, uh, working with a team on, on video compression, supervising PhD students and so on, the sort of the short term, the, there's so much short term stuff that needs to get done that, uh, that I actually ha- feel like I should be doing more of that. So, so I think over time I've, I've drifted uh, more and more uh, away from that, but I still uh, read fairly widely. So, you know, I might read something on developmental psychology, for example. For example, how I'm currently quite interested in, uh, in causality. And uh, there's a bunch of work also in, in developmental psychology showing that really uh, causality plays a very fundamental role also in how children conceptualize the world and how they learn. So that, that's just an example of how, you know, I, I really try to not just focus on the standard curriculum of, of machine learning and statistics and so on, but try to incorporate ideas from, uh, well, initially maybe neuroscience, cognitive science, developmental psychology, but also uh, mathematics and physics and, uh, and a range of fields. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about your current research interests and how you kind of programmatize a, a research agenda. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, uh, I'm currently working on two uh, threads. Uh, one is equivariant networks, uh, and uh, the other is uh, video compression using generative models. Uh, so the first one really started uh, in my well, in my master's thesis and, and PhD uh, program, where I guess we all know that deep learning works uh, works very well if you give it tons and tons of data. Uh, you can approximate essentially any function. But uh, it, very often it takes a lot of uh, examples. So whereas, say, uh, children can learn to recognize objects with just a few labels, you might have to point out, uh, you know, this is a car, this is a tree, and uh, maybe they'll make a mistake, like they think a truck is a car or something like this. You point it out and they, they get it, right? And they will recognize the thing in different lighting conditions, different sizes, and, and so on. So that's a really remarkable ability. And although we can approximate or approach the human capacity for recognition in specific domains, we really need tons of tons of labeled data in particular. Uh, so I thought about how to remedy this. And I was quite inspired by uh, ideas from physics, where this notion of symmetry uh, plays a very important role. Uh, so in physics, uh, uh, you have a situation that's somewhat similar to machine learning and that you have experimental data, uh, and ultimately the goal is to develop mathematical models of the underlying reality that also allow you to make predictions. So on a very abstract level, it's similar. Uh, Now, what the physicists have found is that uh, a very useful type of knowledge to have is, is knowledge about symmetries. So what that means in their case is things like your the predictions that your 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 formula your 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 law of nature gives. Uh, really shouldn't depend on, for example, the coordinate system that you use. So if you have a coordinate system and uh, you say, well, uh, here's uh, the point zero and uh, the zero comma zero comma zero, uh, and you, you relate all other points in space to that origin in a certain way, then uh, you get a, a, you know, you can represent a point by three numbers. Your, your formula uses that point as an input 
and gives you some other output. But if you change the coordinate system, that all those numbers are going to change. And of course, all your predictions are going to change on a numerical level, but the, the physical meaning should really stay the same. Uh, so that's that's an, a, a, a principle of, uh, of symmetry, of translation symmetry in this time, in this case. Uh, you have translation in time as well, rotations. You have various other symmetries uh, in nature, depending on uh, uh, what context you're working in. What the physicists really found is that from just a handful of symmetries, the very obvious things that I just mentioned, that your results shouldn't depend on where you put your coordinate system, how you orient it, etc., from just that, that, that handful of symmetries, you can almost fully determine the laws of nature. It's not, not quite like that, but you need, there's very few degrees of freedom for which you would need data to fill them in. And so that has been extraordinarily successful. Yeah, go can ahead. Can you give us a, a concrete example from physics of uh, how this symmetry helps solve a, a problem? Yeah, so for example, the time translation symmetry it gives you, via something called Noether's Noether's theorem, gives you the uh, conservation of energy. So at a very high level, every every continuous symmetry in physics will give you a conservation law. And, well, there are... Yeah, I, I'm actually... So I'm not a physicist, so I, I, I wouldn't... I, would, I don't want to give you, like... I don't want to say something wrong. But uh, I have, uh, I do remember reading various examples of, of uh, famous physicists just thinking about a problem and thinking about the, uh, what, what would be the, the right law here. And just based on writing down the simplest possible equation that satisfies this symmetry, they figured out what, what this law should be. So it's, I, 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 don't, I don't have that many great uh, specific examples, but I have read basically every uh, physicists will tell you, you know, uh, symmetry is the organizing principle in physics. And uh, although I don't know uh, that much physics, I do not understand the, the mathematics behind it. And the cool thing is that this this mathematics is, is uh, well, it's detached from any particular applications. And so, as I mentioned, machine learning, on a, if you squint a lot, it kind of looks like the situation in physics. And so you can apply that same mathematics also to machine learning. You can say, for example, if I'm uh, trying to classify some uh, medical image, some cells in a, in a, in a slide that I want to uh, classify as uh, having some disease or, or being healthy tissue, then uh, it doesn't matter where in the, in the image these cells occur or what their orientation, what they're, how they're rotated, for example. And it turns out that building this symmetry into neural networks can indeed really reduce the number of examples you need to, uh, to classify correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess from a, a physics perspective, the core idea, and I guess I'm just restating what you said, but is, you know, if we really understand the driving, the defining law of how something works, it should be invariant to simple translations, transformations, rotations, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And and the foundation of your work on equivariant neural nets is that we can apply the same idea to neural networks. Yeah, that's right. And and actually, interestingly, a lot of these successful architectures that uh, people have figured out either without thinking about symmetry and equivariance at all, or in some cases thinking about it, but uh, perhaps not in the, the, the same terminology, they also do embody this kind of principle. So the, the most famous example is the convolutional network, which literally everyone who is uh, classifying images or time series is, is using nowadays. 
And this has the simple property that if you translate the input image uh, and then you apply a convolution, you're going to get some feature maps that de detect certain, uh, you know, certain visual patterns in the input. And this feature map that you get from the translated input is just a translation of the feature map you would get from the original image. And so because translation is a symmetry in lots of visual learning uh, problems, this is a beneficial property because now every layer of your network can exploit that same uh, symmetry through weight sharing, basically uh, detecting the pattern, the visual pattern, not just in one location, but everywhere uh, in the image. Uh, and so what we did in, uh, uh, first in uh, 2016 is uh, to, to generalize that and to say, well, the convolutional network works by translating a filter, um, shifting it. And uh, actually, the, uh, the translation group is just one example uh, of a mathematical structure called a group. But it turns out for any group, including the group of rotations, the group of translations and rotations, scales, various other groups, uh, you can actually define a convolution uh, that will apply that, those tra uh, the transformations in that group to your filter and thereby have much increased uh, degree of weight sharing and also enable the, uh, the network to be equivariant to those, uh, those symmetries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, is the idea of equivariance related to, uh, and I'm forgetting the exact terminology, but I've done a number of, at least a couple of interviews with folks that are working on applying neural nets and like non-Cartesian coordinate systems. So the, so curves and I forget the name of the shape that's kind of kidney bean shaped mm -hmm. and that kind of thing where, you know, they'll use it in medical imaging to model the heart and things like that. Is there a tight relationship between this idea of equivariance and, and these kinds of work? It seems like equivariance in some ways is maybe a generalization of, of these. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely a relation. Uh, and actually, uh, so, so we started um, first doing this generalization from planar translational convolutions to convolutions still for images on the plane, but rotating and translating them. And then uh, in 2018, we published a paper called Spherical CNNs, uh, where we basically, again, took, you know, the, the, on, a, on an abstract enough level, the mathematics is the same, but uh, the application here is very different. Uh, you might have, for example, a signal on the sphere, such as a, a weather or climate pattern, some, let's say, pressure or uh, temperature or wind direction at every point on the globe. Or you might have some astrophysical data, some microwave background uh, radiation or other types of uh, uh, signals on the sphere. And you might want to apply a convolutional network to that. So in that case, the symmetries are three-dimensional rotations of the spherical uh, uh, patterns. And you can just define the same uh, kind of group convolution there. So that's already one generalization where you go from a plane to a sphere. And we figured out that you can actually do this kind of generalization for any so-called homogeneous space, which means that uh, you know, any two points in the space can be related by some symmetry transformation. So any two points on the sphere, you can rotate one into the other. And any two points in the plane, you can translate one into the other. And so there are many kinds of homogeneous spaces for various types of, uh, of groups. Uh, but that's, that's still a limitation. It works for homogeneous spaces. And then we thought uh, if it's indeed, if it's possible to generalize this kind of uh, idea to, uh, to manifolds. And there had already been various uh, folks, uh, as you mentioned, working on that. 
And uh, it turns out that indeed, again, equivariance plays a very important role, but it's actually now a different type of equivariance, namely so-called gauge equivariance, which again plays a very uh, important role in, in physics as well. So to explain that, let's say you have a, a general manifold and potentially some, uh, some signal on it. So it's going to say scalar value at each point on the manifold. Manifold, uh, if you want to have some intuition, is just a curved uh, space. So it could be, let's say, the outside of a, of a humanoid figure. It could be a, the surface uh, of an isoenergy surface of a protein, for example. It could be, it could be any type of uh, surface, really. And we want to apply the same idea that we have that we do some kind of convolution on it because we know that these convolutions have been so uh, successful in uh, in uh, other areas of deep learning. Uh, so you can define a filter on a on a manifold. It's uh, just some function on uh, from the manifold to a scalar, and then you're you're uh, you know confronted with the question: How are we going to shift that filter over the manifold? Right in the in the translate in the planar case, it's quite obvious. You can visualize what that means to shift a filter over an image. You can also write down the equations quite easily. But how does that work on a curved manifold? And it turns out that this is a, this is a surprisingly tricky question because uh, there is a certain notion called parallel transport, which allows you to move around geometrical quantities, including filters or other vectors, tensors, etc. You can move them over a manifold by following some curve. But it turns out that the, the result of this transporting from A to B depends on what curve you choose, how you move from A to B. So in the plane, that's not the case. In the plane, if we have a filter at one position and we move it to another position, it doesn't matter if we first move up and then down for some weird curve and we end up there by parallel transport. The result is going to be the same. So only the endpoints matter. But on curved surfaces, uh, suddenly the path that you choose starts to matter. So, for example, on a sphere, we have a picture of this in our paper uh, on gauge equivariant CNNs, if, if people want to want to know what I'm talking about. But if you have a, a vector on, a, let's say, a vector pointing in some direction on the, on, the, on the front of the sphere, and you move it to the back of the sphere via one path, via, let's say, via the side or via the top, you're going to end up with a vector pointing exactly in the opposite uh, direction. So the point is, on curved surfaces, this parallel transport by which we hope to transport our filter so that we can define a convolution. Uh, it depends on the path. Uh, and the path is completely arbitrary, so it's, it's hard to see how you're going to use that to define a convolution. And so the, the solution turns out to be uh, to choose an arbitrary path or equivalently to, just to choose an arbitrary orientation of your filter at any position in a manifold. Uh, but to make sure that this, in some sense, doesn't matter, in that if you had rotated it, the filter in a different way, if you had positioned it in a different way at each point on the manifold, the outputs that you compute would transform in some uh, predictable way. And so in other words, you can still interpret those uh, coefficients coming out of your network in a, in a geometrically sensible way relative to this choice of frame or gauge, as, uh, as the physicists call it. I hope that makes some sense. Got it. And it reminds me of kind of basic algebraic properties of associative and commutative where the, you know, we're talking about the order of operations and for some types of problems it matters and, and you can't just flip things around and, and do them in arbitrary orders. Yeah, I would say it's, it's somewhat similar. And, and certainly the notion of commutativity also plays a big role in, in group theory. Uh, and so, for instance, the it, translation is, is commutative. So you, you translate 
to the right and up is the same as translating up and then to the right. Uh, but again, in the case of three-dimensional rotations, that, that's already no longer uh, true. So we say the group of 3D rotations is non-commutative, and that really changes the, the mathematical picture a lot, and you get into all sorts of very interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, so yes, uh, that, 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 that's a good, uh, good observation. Right. So this is kind of uh, the broad research interest in equivariance and equivariant neural nets. And you have uh, doing a couple of things at NeurIPS related to that research thread, uh, one of which is a paper on natural graph networks. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, so this is the, let's say, the latest step in this sequence of more and more general convolutional nets. So in addition to the, the manifolds that we, we talked about, uh, there's been a lot of a uh, lot of interest in putting convolutional nets or neural nets in general on graphs, and um, actually equivariance again has been found to be very important uh, there. So, if you have a, a graph, one way that you could represent it is as uh, an adjacency matrix. So, along the rows and columns of the matrix, you have the the nodes in some arbitrary order. And then each uh, entry of the matrix will have a one if there's a connection between those two nodes and zero otherwise. And so already you can see that uh, similar to how a visual object might appear in different locations in the image, and nevertheless, we say it's essentially the same thing. Here again, you have a symmetry, namely permutation of the nodes. You can permute the nodes, i.e. permute both the rows and columns of the adjacency matrix, and you still have essentially the same graph. So what we want is, is to have a network that gives a certain prediction for some property of the graph or maybe some property of the individual nodes in the graph. And it shouldn't depend on how this, uh, this ordering is, uh, is done. So the solution, again, is to, to build a network that's equivariant uh, to those uh, permutations. Uh, so it would output, let's say, one classification per node. And if you permute the nodes on the input side, the predictions will also be permuted. And that's a, that's, a, that's a mathematical guarantee that you want to have your network satisfy. Uh, so that's how, um, uh, that's what, let's say, most people thought uh, before this paper, that equivariance is sort of a must-have, and any network that isn't equivariant is, is, is inherently wrong. Uh, but what we show in this paper, uh, using a, a mathematical framework called category theory, which is... Uh, uh, used throughout mathematics and also increasingly physics to really structure knowledge and to relate different fields to each other. Using that that uh, that framework, we show that there's actually this concept of naturality, which is a generalization of equivariance, uh, which is really the minimum that your network has to satisfy for it to be, to make sense, i.e. to make a prediction for a, a graph independent of the, the ordering of the nodes. And so by, by uh, let's say, weakening that constraint on the network, you actually open up uh, a wider class of architectures that all will still make sensible predictions, independent of the ordering, but can do certain computations that a equivariant network or equivariant linear map could not. Uh, you're probably just about to go there, but tell us a bit about what naturality means in this context. Yeah, so in this, in this context... You can think of it like this. So if we have a graph layer that's equivariant to permutations, that turns out to be a really, really strong constraint on particularly on linear layers. So there's been uh, some uh, earlier work that showed that if you want an equivariant permutation equivariant linear layer, 
that layer can really only have two parameters. And that's regardless of the number of nodes. So that seems kind of boring. One of those parameters says, pull some all the inputs. Uh, that's obviously permutation invariant. Uh, and then multiply that by, by some sca- learned scalar and broadcast that to the output. And the other parameter is basically multiply the input by scalar and, co- and, and add it. So then you get an equivariant layer, but it's kind of a very boring kind of uh, information processing. And the reason really is that the permutation group is very large. So if you have n nodes, there are n factorial permutations, which is a really uh, huge, uh, potentially huge number if n is large. So that's a very strong constraint. In the case of a natural graph network, uh, the constraint of naturality really only requires the the network to make to perform equivalent processing of isomorphic graphs. So the isomorphic graphs are the graphs that are related by some permutation. But for non-isomorphic graphs, you can do entirely different kinds of information processing. So basically, for each isomorphism class of graphs, so for each set of, well, you just choose a graph and you apply all possible permutations to it, that gives you some isomorphism class. For each such class, you have one linear map. And the only constraint that this linear map will have to satisfy is that it's equivariant to the symmetries of that graph. So if you have, uh, let's say, a, uh, a grid graph, for example, like uh, the pixels in an image connected with their uh, left, right, up, down neighbors, for example, uh, you could uh, t- look at the local neighborhood, you could flip that or uh, rotate it, for example, that's the symmetry of the graph, a mapping from the set of nodes to the set of nodes that preserves the edge structure. And that typically is a much smaller group than the full group of permutations. So the constraint on this linear map is, is, uh, is much weaker. Mm, got it. It sounds kind of very simply put as a divide and conquer type of approach. Previously, your constraint was on everything, and now you're going to constrain the groups of similar things. The constraint is fundamentally the same, but you're constraining the groups independently of one another. So you have more degrees of freedom between the different groups. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, the one way to think about it is that if you have two unrelated graphs, so non-isomorphic graphs, and you have a particular permutation, say permutation that swaps node one and two, is that is that really, can you really think of that as being the same transformation regardless of the graph? Does it have the same meaning in the different context? And, and I think the answer is, is no. And, and acknowledging that actually, which is a very subtle sort of point, turns out to uh, to really broaden this class of transformations uh, by a great degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets us to the kind of so what of this research. What is this? I understand from the explanation that this reduces the constraints on our network architectures. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, what does that give us? Does this allow us to create more efficient networks, more accurate networks? Mainly more accurate, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say more accurate. It's, it's not necessarily uh, more efficient. It depends a lot on the particular choices that you make in the, the architecture and such. But uh, I think equivariance in general and also naturality is, is, is really all about uh, data efficiency. So can you learn a function with few examples? And in the case of natural graph networks, you know, since it's the, the baseline essentially is already an equivariant net, the benefit is really expressivity, so the class of functions that the network uh, can learn. And uh, over the last uh, few years, it's become clear 
that uh, a lot of the graph networks that were initially proposed, they are completely unable to even distinguish certain non-isomorphic graphs. So you have two graphs that have a certain type of uh, regularity, but they're nevertheless different. The graph network will, will uh, you know, by virtue of this, this, this equivariance weight tying, will necessarily make the same prediction also for those different graphs. And uh, that, of course, is something that, depending on the application, you, you might not want. Mm-hmm. And how are constraints like equivariance generally and naturality implemented in networks? Is this in, is it kind of baked into cost functions or training methodology? How do you express this in the process of creating the network? Yeah, excellent question. Um, So the approach that I've worked on mostly is to implement it via weight sharing. So again, if you think back to the the most uh, well-known example, the convolutional network, there you have a filter uh, that's say three by three, so nine parameters, and you apply it not just in one position, but in many positions. So if you think about your uh, convolution layer, well, it's a linear map, so it can be expressed as a matrix, but this matrix will have many entries that are actually the same, that correspond to the same uh, learnable parameter. And it turns out that in essentially all, yeah, I think all cases uh, of equivariance, you can in principle get uh, build in equivariance using the same approach, i.e. weight sharing. So in, in, in some classes uh, of methods, what you would do is you would, you look at the space of equivariant maps. Uh, so that's, uh, that's an equivariant linear map. So you look at the space of linear maps between two feature spaces. You put a linear constraint on it. That's the equivariance constraint. You get some subspace uh, of the space of linear maps that is equivariant. And you can compute a basis for that during a pre-processing stage. And then instead of uh, learning each entry in the matrix or each entry in your filter, for example, you would learn each coefficient that is multiplied by one of these basis maps, and that's uh, that's uh, you just perform backprop on uh, on that. Nice, and, and I understand that one of the things that your team is working on for NeurIPS is a demo of equivariance and potentially natural. I don't know if naturality is part of the the demo, but uh, no, not yet. Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing this. You know, I've I've had uh, a couple of conversations with Max where we touched on this and this conversation with you. And I understand it a bit more each time. And I'd love to kind of see it in action via the the demo. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, uh, so a couple of colleagues have worked on this and I've uh, seen the video uh, recently. It's, it's, it looks uh, very awesome. So, uh, so people should definitely check that out at, uh, at NeurIPS. Uh, so uh, basically... The demo we have is uh, a GCNN, so Group Equivariant Convolutional Network, running on a phone, which is quite, I think, an achievement. First of all, just running convolutional nets efficiently on a phone, that's a, that's a serious challenge. And many of my colleagues at Qualcomm, they have been working on this uh, for, for many years to build basically the, the tools that allow you to take uh, some humongous uh, uh, network and prune it, quantize it, and do all sorts of other tricks to, to make it run efficiently on an edge device without using uh, you know, uh, all of your battery. And uh, with, with uh, equivariant nets, this, there are some additional challenges there. Firstly, because of the increased statistical efficiency or data efficiency, 
it's often possible to make the network much larger uh, without overfitting. Uh, so we see that the best performance that we get at a fixed data set size is actually by inflating the, the model size and keeping the number of parameters fixed. You can also run the GCNN at an equal compute budget as the baseline and reduce the number of parameters. That also typically improves the, uh, the accuracy. Uh, but in that case, you still have uh, another challenge, which is that because of the qu- if you want to do some kind of quantization or pruning that could actually interfere with the equivariance and make the the whole thing uh, uh, not work. So there's some additional numerical uh, accuracy issues that you need to take uh, take care of. So what my colleagues have done is to uh, take, first of all, take a very efficient baseline architecture, turn it into an equal compute GCNN, and then uh, thinking carefully about the, um, the numerical accuracy and the, uh, the signal processing behind it, making sure not to have aliasing in the, in the filters. They designed an equivariant network that is very robust to pruning and quantization. Uh, then they applied these state-of-the-art pruning uh, methods, which uh, Qualcomm has developed and which are also actually available for any network you might have via the uh, AMAP, the AI Model Efficiency Toolkit. And then that's it, basically. That now it runs, uh, I don't know exactly the numbers, but it runs uh, much, much faster on, uh, on a phone. And so we, uh, we demoed this uh, using uh, an application in, uh, in medical imaging, uh, which is one of the areas I'm, uh, I'm most excited about, where symmetries are omnipresent. Uh, and in some applications, uh, uh, you really want your medical uh, imaging uh, system to also run on low-power edge devices, particularly for uh, deployments in, uh, in low-resource uh, countries. So that's the demo, running a GCN on device in a numerically efficient, numerically accurate and efficient manner. Interesting, interesting. One of the things that you mentioned there was that you developed an implementation of the GCNN that is amenable to the application of off-the-shelf quantization methods. And I'm wondering, have you... Do you explore the other direction as well? Meaning, you know, get the best optimized GCNN you can and then try to define a unique category or class of quantization methods that apply, you know, uniquely to equivariant networks as opposed to you know, applying off-the-shelf quantization. Does that work or make sense? Or I think that's an interesting idea, actually. It's, it's not something we have looked at already. But uh, there may be some things that you, you can do. However, uh, what we typically do uh, is, uh, as I mentioned, that the, in the implementation of a GCNN, instead of directly learning the, the weights of the filters, you learn the weights associated with the basis filters, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then during a forward pass, you linearly combine the basis filters, and then you convolve those with your feature map. But the thing is, at, um, once you've done where you're done with training, you can actually collapse the filters. Uh, you know, you, you expand them with the, the learned uh, weights. And now you just have a regular filter, a regular filter bank. And so after training, you can turn a GCNN into a conventional CNN. And so it, you can do that first and then apply the quantization. So in a way, any algorithm that will work for a, for a CNN can in principle be applied to a GCNN as well. Uh, however, as I mentioned, in order to push a little bit about regularizing those basis filters and making sure they, they don't have uh, any aliasing artifacts. Cool. cool. Uh, so you're also participating in a differential geometry meets deep learning workshop? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is a very interesting looking workshop uh, organized at NeurIPS. 
where I'm giving an invited talk on gauge theory in uh, deep learning. So I think I already mentioned this uh, when we talked about uh, convolutional nets on, on manifolds. Uh, and so there, what I'm going to do is uh, tell this story with a bit more math, uh, still okay. trying to make it accessible with pictures, but at least giving people sort of a, a map of the landscape of all the terminology of your principal fiber bundles and uh, symmetry groups and all that, uh, and explaining in pictures what they represent and how they're actually applied in modeling this very wide class of generalized convolutional nets from GCNNs on the plane to spherical CNNs, CNNs on homogeneous spaces, and also finally on manifolds where this gauge theory really uh, comes into play. So yeah, so that's uh, that's uh, that's what I'll be doing there. Awesome, awesome. And then we started out talking about your research interests broadly and kind of dug deep into the equivariance thread. But there's another thread where you're interested in video compression. Uh, tell us a bit about what your focus is on there. Absolutely, yeah. So actually, these days, uh, that's uh, what I would spend uh, the majority of my time on, actually. So basically, as you probably know, uh, there's been a ton of work uh, recently on generative models. And uh, when you look at the, the papers in that space, uh, very often uh, people look at uh, log likelihoods and they look at sample quality. And there's been some criticism saying, you know, okay, this is great. It's a, it's a great sort of grand challenge for the field that has led to tons of progress, both on the theoretical end with innovations like uh, VAEs, uh, variational autoencoders, uh, GANs, uh, generative adversarial nets, and, and many other uh, approaches. But, you know, you can ask, what is, it, what is it good for? Maybe the idea was we're going to use it for data augmentation, but it doesn't really work, or imagining the future, but also I haven't seen that being uh, used uh, too much in, uh, in RL. Uh, so uh, it turns out there's a wonderful application, which is uh, data compression. It's been known ever since, uh, since Shannon published the uh, first works on, on information theory that, you know, modeling the probability distribution uh, is just one side of the coin and the other side is, is compression. So as soon as you have a good probability model of some data, that is to say you can say for each data point whether it's likely to appear or unlikely or rather uh, exactly how likely it is to appear, you can turn that into a coding scheme where you just assign few bits to likely symbols and uh, a lot of bits to uh, infrequently occurring uh, symbols. So that's the, the abstract stuff. Uh, it's, it's been known for a long time. Uh, but now the cool thing is that we've made a lot of progress on this problem of uh, modeling probability distributions using deep nets, i.e. with uh, deep generative models. So what we're working on uh, in my team at, uh, at Qualcomm is to, uh, to really sort of uh, realize that, that dream. Uh, we're using techniques like uh, variational autoencoders, GANs, uh, flows, autoregressive models, you know, the whole, whole uh, bag of tricks to really compress, uh, you know, primarily video data. And so we're also looking at image data, speech data, and so on. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, I could say a couple things about uh, how this uh, works at a, at a high level. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's start with a, with a basic uh, VAE, variational autoencoder. So this consists of an autoencoder, so an encoder neural network that takes, say, uh, as input an image and outputs some uh, so-called latent variables. Uh, there's a decoder that takes the latent variables and tries to reconstruct the uh, original image. And of course, if you don't have any constraint on your latent variables, it could be very easy. You can just you learn the identity function for the encoder and decoder, 
uh, and you won't learn anything interesting or be able to use that for compression. So what a VAE does is it uh, puts a constraint on the latent variables via a, a KL term that basically, uh, you know, you introduce a, a prior distribution on the latent variables and you require the encoder and prior to output similar uh, distributions. Now, the compression interpretation of such a system is that what the encoder network will do is it will produce an encoding uh, of the, uh, the data that may lose some information. So, for example, uh, the, if the image contains uh, a patch of grass uh, or something, maybe the uh, encoder will only remember the fact that there is grass here, but not necessarily all the uh, low-level details of, uh, of how the, each uh, piece of grass is oriented. The decoder tries to reconstruct it, so it, it's doing you know, we're doing loss in compression, it's trying to reconstruct it as best as it can. And then in addition, the latent variables, which is the thing you're going to transmit, they may have some redundancy. So for example, there may be a correlation. If you say see a patch of grass in one part of the image, maybe it's more like that makes it more likely that there's also a patch of grass in another region of the image. And so as soon as that happens, you should be able to losslessly compress those if you have a probability model. And that probability model, that role is played by the prior of the VAE. So there's really this very beautiful, perfect fit between the VAE, which was invented without necessarily thinking about this application, and lossy compression, where the autoencoder does the lossy part and the prior does the lossless encoding of the, of the latent. Now, that is still a very high-level uh, description. And when you actually want to make this work in a practical way, there's still tons of things to, to do. You have to think about how to quantize those latent variables, how to design encoder, decoders, and priors that are computationally efficient. We're looking at also uh, hybrids between VAEs and GANs, where the decoder doesn't just try to do his, uh, the best job at reconstructing the input and uh, maybe ending up with some blurry patch of grass that is pretty close to the original but because the information is lost, it is lost. It can output exactly the uh, the same thing as the uh, as the input. But in addition, by adding GAN losses, we can have the decoder essentially imagine what the grass might have looked like. So it's trying to output something that's not just close to the uh, original image being compressed, but also is indistinguishable by a discriminator network uh, from real data. And so it's essentially, you know, confabulating, making up details uh, that are perceptually realistic and pleasant to look at without us having to transmit those. So that is, I think, one of the very exciting possibilities of, uh, of neural compression algorithms that uh, previous generations of, uh, you know, classical non-learning-based codecs uh, couldn't implement. Mm. You know, I think of traditional compression, you're basically trying to identify redundancies in the image and through some encoding process, get rid of them. And here, you're trying to rather predict the distribution of the the image. I'm um, not sure if that's the best way to describe it, but the thing that you're transmitting or the compressed video that you're storing is your your latency as opposed to some encoding. Is that the idea? And then yep. you're using a generative model to reconstruct from those latents as opposed to a decoder to reconstruct your video. Um, yeah, I think that's entirely accurate. Yeah. In fact, some of the same principles that we're, that we're using were also used in, uh, in classical codecs. 
Only there, typically the encoder and decoder aren't uh, nonlinear, they're linear maps. So for example, wavelet transform or some discrete cosine transform or something like that, which typically is hand-designed to produce sparse coefficients. So take a patch of an image, you apply one of these transforms, now you get a whole bunch of numbers that are almost zero uh, and a bunch of uh, coefficients that are large. And uh, then implicitly, there's also a prior at play there, which says, I expect most of these coefficients to be close to zero. So we'll just set those exactly to zero, uh, that's the quantization, and then we'll have a scheme to efficiently code when there's lots of zeros. Uh, and that's, that's a, you know, in a nutshell, how things like JPEG, for example, uh, work. And so, and yeah. Wavelets and DCTs is, wavelets and DCTs are bringing back uh, grad school memories for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's beautiful stuff. And, and uh, the interesting thing is if you look at like what uh, convolutional nets learn in, in the early layers, it's something very similar to that. Hmm. Uh, but then what's, what's very hard to sort of design by hand, if you were to design a wavelet transform or even something nonlinear, like a stack of wavelet transform, a scattering transform or something, is learn filters that really take into account the very complicated semantics and all the variety of, of high-level visual concepts that can appear. Even thinking about that, just enumerating that, is, is, it's impossible. So you really have to rely on learning from lots of data and using highly nonlinear architectures. But again, if you, if you just think about the encoder, decoder as, as maps in the abstract, there's nothing has changed, right? It's still this same underlying information theoretical principles. Mm-hmm. Now, it, my intuition here is that at least today you could probably uh, maybe 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 not. I guess you know I'm I'm kind of picturing this and I'm envisioning that using this approach as opposed to a traditional approach, we could probably get to a much better bit rate, but we could not get to comparable or even close accuracy, even if we you know, arbitrarily scaled up the bit rate, i.e. the size of our latents. Is that true? No, I, would say, I would say that's true, actually. If, uh, so, so the way we usually uh, evaluate these systems is by looking at rate distortion curves. So basically, okay. you, you would train different versions of your model that um, trade off the rate, so the number of bits you require, and the distortion, so how accurate is the reconstruction. They trade them off in, uh, in different ways. And so you'll end up with points on this rate distortion plane. And uh, you'll, what you'll find typically is, is a, well, a, a certain curve where as you add more bits, you get uh, more accurate reconstructions, so what you would expect. And now you can look at, you can compare these curves between different models. So you can take a classical codec and uh, uh, use a different trade-off parameter there to get such a curve. And then if one curve is entirely above another, you could say that it's, it's really better. Or if it's above another curve in a certain region of bitrate, then you say it's better in that region. So that's, that's how we compare these. And actually, it turns out that the learned compression methods already outperform classical codecs, even when you just look at these rate distortion plots. Uh, now, there's, there's a lot of subtlety there, so uh, maybe uh, some classical codec folks will uh, get angry when they see this. But... <laughs> There, there, there's lots of uh, subtleties, you know, the, the, the classical codec folks work in different color spaces and they use, optimize for different loss functions, uh, PSNR versus MSSIM, blah, blah, blah. It's lots of detail, but my uh, high-level assessment is that we're close or slightly better. And that is only when we use these 
fairly naive kind of uh, uh, distortion metrics like, say, squared error uh, or uh, something called MSSAM, uh, which really will you know tell you that your network is making a bad reconstruction when it's outputting grass that looks different from the original grass, even if to the human eye, the you know, semantics is completely unchanged and nobody would care that it looks a bit different. So there's an additional layer of subtlety in the evaluation in that what we probably want from an ideal neural codec is that it actually outputs something that is different because it can't, you know, there's not enough information in the latency to actually reconstruct, but it still always should look visually pleasing and, and realistic. Uh, well, that and, was uh, also counterintuitive for me. I would have guessed that, you know, just thinking about pictures of like style transfer and other generative video that where these kinds of compression metrics may on a kind of qualitative metric basis perform, you know, at or better, there'd be some qualitative perceptual metric where, whereby, yeah, that's grass, but you know, it's not, it looks weird or it doesn't really fit or something like that. But what you're saying is the opposite that actually on a perceptual basis, the stuff that these networks don't do well, we don't really care about when looking at the resulting video. Is that what you're saying? And uh, yeah, I would I would say uh, the 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 ultimate goal of especially the VAE GAN hybrids is indeed that the details that are different uh, are things that we wouldn't really notice. And there have been some recent works uh, from our group as well as others uh, on these GAN based compression schemes that I think actually show that this is uh, starting to be possible. But I wouldn't say we're there yet with the GAN-based uh, compression systems. There's still work to be done. But even if we use these sort of objective measures like a mean squared error between the original image and the reconstruction, we're already doing better there as well. And what ha- what tends to happen there is that, uh, so that, that's in the non-GAN-based compression schemes. One would um, typically see blurry outputs. That's what neural compression t- uh, with trained with MSC tends to do. It's more blurry as you reduce the bitrate. Whereas classical codecs, they will often introduce artifacts, such as blocking artifacts or, or things like that. So there's different kinds of artifacts. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one is preferable, but I think ultimately it won't matter because the, the blurriness is going to be alleviated by just filling in details uh, using a GAN-type generator. Interesting, interesting. And so end of the day, assuming kind of equivalence, you know, whatever metrics we're using, What's the relative bit rate or advantage or, you know, how do you compare these networks? It would be in terms of relative bit rates to achieve the same outcome, right? Yeah, uh, that's how you can look at it. Or you can look at something called uh, BD rate, which basically looks at the, the whole rate distortion curve and looks at how, how much uh, you gain uh, at each operating point. So again, the evaluation, in, especially in the video compression cases, is very subtle, but we have uh, one system for speech compression, uh, which is, again, based on the same principles, just using different types of network architectures. And in that case, uh, which I think is, is our, our biggest success so far, we achieved a 3x uh, bitrate improvement uh, over the classical codex at the same um, distortion level. So that's really, uh, you know, I think uh, quite uh, quite profound. And that wasn't even using any kind of GAN-based techniques yet. Wow, that's awesome. 
so has, has the uh, kind of neural compression, has this made it into devices uh, or you know, silicon yet, or is this still research frontier? Not yet. Uh, it's, it's definitely a research frontier, and and you know a lot of the stuff we're doing is is literally looking at the, every uh, at every conference. We look at all the generative modeling papers and we get excited about oh, you could apply this to compression, and you could apply this to compression, and uh, even coming up with new techniques in generative modeling. So uh, what, especially what my team is doing is is definitely research oriented, but we are uh, increasingly paying attention to compute efficiency as well, which I would say is. Uh, one of the major challenges for this uh, type of method. And we hope that uh, sometime in the, in the near future, we'll be able to run this uh, on device uh, as well and eventually uh, look at putting that into uh, products uh, at some point. And so compute efficiency remains the primary constraint, the primary barrier to getting this on device? Uh, yes, that is the number one blocker, I think. But I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, so we haven't even started actually supplying all of the tools that all the other teams in Qualcomm AI research have worked on, like the pruning quantization. We haven't even done that. And some early simulations uh, suggest that we, we can uh, already get at, say, uh, we're, let's say half of the performance that we, we need to be to, uh, to run this on device. So we're, we're hopeful that this can be done. And meanwhile, uh, we're... You know, personally, I'm also very excited about achieving this uh, this vision of uh, high perceptual quality at any bitrate. Where, as you reduce the bitrate, the the image will change and will look less and less like the original, but it will always look like a realistic one. And in the limit of zero bits, uh, you would just be doing generative modeling and producing random uh, images. So uh, that is the other sort of focus point for uh, for our team. Nice. So maybe to wrap up, Qualcomm's got a bunch of other stuff happening at NURPS. I don't know that we can apply some compression to this part of the conversation and maybe you know, <laughs> get us to uh, you know thirty seconds to a couple of minutes of overview. But uh, can we do kind of a quick round of, of highlight reel for some sure. of our stuff? So yeah, a couple so, yeah. of other papers, uh, Bayesian bits and structured convolutions. Yes, that's right. So the first one, we have a couple of demos. So in addition to the GCNN demo I mentioned, there's uh, ADA round for adaptive rounding, where surprisingly, if you want to quantize the weights of a network, it's not optimal to quantize to the nearest value. Uh, and there's actually an adaptive scheme that uh, my colleagues came up with that, uh, that allows you to quantize and get better performance than using the uh, naive uh, approach. There's a, let's say, see, there's a demo on real-time high-resolution uh, video semantic segmentation. And uh, as I mentioned, the GCNN demo. Uh, so, yeah, papers, uh, let's see, you mentioned Bayesian bits. So that's a, a method that basically, well, uses Bayesian thinking to do mixed precision quantization and pruning. Pruning meaning, you know, eliminating neurons or, or feature maps which is, uh, you can think of as zero-bit quantization. And uh, that's a very elegant scheme for doing this. Yeah, and a, and a couple other papers uh, as well. Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, one final thing is we have a NeurIPS social uh, where we uh, basically, you know, we get a lot of questions about how do I get hired at, a, uh, at an uh, industrial AI lab. And so we're going to basically try to uh, give some, uh, some tips for people uh, looking to get into the field or looking to get hired uh, at one of the, the big labs not focused particularly on Qualcomm, although, of course, we are always hiring great people. 
but uh, trying to really um, provide some value for the, the folks uh, who are in this uh, position in their career. That's awesome. Well, we will, uh, we will publish in the show notes links to the blog post that talks about everything that Qualcomm is doing at NeurIPS. And I think that also has kind of a schedule for activities and you know where you can access these demos and all that good stuff. But Taco, I want to thank you for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff and looking forward to hearing more. Thanks, Sam. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.